morning, Grace Hill. So good to see all of your faces here and seeing some faces that I haven't seen in a long time. So that brings me uh, a lot of joy just to have all of us gathered together again for the second time on a Sunday morning um, in a really long time. So this is fantastic. Hey, we have a special um, thing we're about to do right now. One of the things uh, about Grace Hill Church is we are a elder-led, congregationally ruled church. You're like, what does that mean? Well, what that means is that the authority in our church lies in the congregation, in you, but we are led by a plurality, a group of elders that you put into place in order to lead this church and to lead this body. And what I mean by plurality is we believe that our church should be led by a group of elders and not just one person that gets to call all the shots and do all of the things. So one of the most important things that we do from time to time is we install new elders uh, in our church. And this morning I'm really excited uh, that we're going to be installing two new elders at Grace Hill Church. Our members... um, Probably three weeks ago now, I think, I don't know, I could be off on that, um, voted uh, to do this. And so today we just get the opportunity to bring these guys up and to have them make a covenant with you, the congregation, and to uh, lay hands on them and pray over them and set them apart to lead in our church. So very excited. So I would like to invite up uh, Evan Snyder and his whole family and Justin Winters and his family and all of our current elders, if we could all make our way forward, that would be great. Don't be shy. Come on. Come on up. As they're making their way up, I'm just going to say uh, a few words um, about both Justin and uh, Evan. Um, both of these guys were uh, unanimously um, voted in by our members to serve as an elder. Um, a couple of things I want to say about eldership um, in general. At Grace Hill Church, we believe that to be an elder means to be a pastor. So when we study scripture, we don't see any difference in scripture between the office of elder and pastor. Uh, we think they're the same. Uh, that an elder, what they are called to do in scripture uh, is to pray, Acts 6, the ministry of the word, Acts 6, to shepherd the flock of God, 1 Peter 5, and to have spiritual oversight of the church. Their main role is not to be executive decision makers. Their main role isn't to decide what to do with money. Their main role isn't those things. Their main role is to shepherd you and to help you grow in your walk with Christ and to lead our church uh, with gentleness and strength and all these things. And one of the things I want to say about Justin And I want to say about Evan is that I've known both of these men for a long time now. All of our elders have. We think it's really important that we take the time to evaluate and assess the character and the competency and the compatibility of these guys. And we have taken the time to do that. This was not a fast process, right, Justin? Not at all. No, it wasn't. But I want to say this. Um, Both of these men are dear friends of mine now. And um, I've seen both of them at their best and at their worst. I've seen them fight with their wives. I've seen them 
parent their kids through some challenging things. I've seen them serve. I've seen them teach. I've seen them share the gospel with somebody. I've seen them all over the place. And I just want to tell you that these are faithful men who love Jesus. They love you. They're not standing up here because they want power. They're not standing up here because they're greedy for some sort of gain. They're standing up here because the Lord has called them to lead us in this way, and they have faithfully accepted that call. So what we're going to do, Justin and uh, Evan, is I have a series of questions that I'm going to ask and would like for you to answer. Um, And this is a covenant that you are making with our congregation. And then uh, to you, I have a couple of questions after that I'm going to ask of you, and I'd like for you to answer, because you are making a covenant with them. All right? And those questions, when we get there, will be on the screen, so you'll be able to read them. All right? So, Justin and Evan, let me... Here, I'll kind of stand over here if I can do this. Here are my questions. I have... How many of these I have? I have 10 of these. All right? 10 questions. Here they go. Here we go. Number one is this. Do you affirm in front of the congregation today your faith in Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior? Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the word of God, totally trustworthy, fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, the supreme, final, and the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Do you sincerely believe the statement of faith and bylaws of this church that they contain the truth taught in Holy Scripture? Do you promise that if any time you find yourself out of accord with any of these statements of faith and bylaws, you will on your own initiative make known to the other elders the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of this vow? Do you subscribe to the government and discipline of Grace Hill Church? Do you promise to submit to your fellow elders as to the Lord? Have you been induced, as far as you know, in your own heart, to accept the office of elder from love of God and sincere desire to promote his glory and the gospel of his son? Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in promoting the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise to you on that account? Will you be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all your duties as elder, whether personal or relative, private or public? And will you endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your manner of life and to walk with exemplary piety before this congregation. Last one. Are you now willing to take personal responsibility and ownership in the life of this congregation as an elder to oversee the ministry and resources of the church and to devote yourself to prayer, the ministry of the word, and the shepherding of God's flock, relying upon the grace of God in such a way that Grace Hill Church and the entire church of Jesus Christ will be blessed. In Grace Hill, I have two questions for you as well. 
I'm gonna put these on the screen. Here's the first one. Do you, the members of Grace Hill Church, acknowledge and publicly receive Evan Snyder and Justin Winters as elders, as gifts of Christ to this church? If so, say we do. Second question is this, will you love them? Pray for them in their ministry and work together with them humbly and cheerfully that by the grace of God, you may accomplish the mission of the church. If so, say we will. Amen. We're gonna um, now lay hands on you guys. Hopefully you're okay with that. All right, a bunch of people coming around you. Um, I've asked uh, Monty McCullough here to uh, pray over Justin and his family. And so, uh, fellas, why don't you join us over here? We're going to pray for Justin. And if you're uh, in the audience here, you can raise a hand just in agreement as we lay hands here upon Justin. Will you all pray for Justin and his family with me? Father, we're taking this moment to recognize and hold Justin Winters in our thoughts and to honor him with the office of elder pastor in this congregation. We ask that you hold him. We ask that you honor him in his office. We ask that you hold and honor Lindsay and his family as he serves in this office. We ask that you remain ever at work in their hearts and lives. You have directed their path toward this service and for your good ends. He has already served as you did, Lord. He has poured out his life for this body of your followers. We see that your spirit is at work in the lives of those he has served and touched. You're the one that can keep his heart soft and to protect him from fear, disappointment, anger, and idolatry. We lift him up. We lift Lindsay up. We lift this family up to you, asking that you cause them to be content as just and ministers regardless of many different outcomes. We're grateful to you, Lord, for giving us Justin, Lindsay, and their family and for preparing, preparing Justin for this time. We pray for all of this in your son's holy name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I've asked uh, Jamie Adams to pray over Evan and his family as we lay hands. Father, thank you for my friend Evan. Thank you for bringing him to Grace Hill to serve you and your church. And thank you for the privilege to pray over my brother as he is installed as an elder at Grace Hill. Thank you for Evan's gentle shepherding heart. Thank you for how he listens to people, how he encourages people, and how he intentionally goes after people and cares for them well. Father, Help Evan recognize and remember that shepherding God's people is both a great privilege and a great responsibility. Help Evan to depend wholly upon Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for his salvation. Help Evan hold firmly to the trustworthy truth of the Holy Scriptures so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Help Evan to live a life that is characterized as temperate, 
respectable, gentle, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, and loving what is good. Help Evan to love and lead Stacy and his children well, and to lovingly encourage them and spiritually strengthen them, recognizing that his family is his most precious earthly responsibility. Help Evan to live in such a way so as not to be characterized as a lover of money, nor pursue dishonest gain. Help Evan to shepherd God's flock at Grace Hill with a servant's heart and to support them always in prayer. Help Evan to be hospitable and maintain a good reputation outside the church so others can see Jesus by the way he lives his life. And Father, we just pray this for Evan and his family, that you would bless and keep them, that you would make your face shine upon them and be gracious to them, and that you would turn your face toward them and give them peace. We love you, Father, and we pray all this in your holy name. Amen. Love you, brothers. Would you give these guys a hand? Give me a hug, Jay. Love you, man. All right. Thanks for thanks for uh, joining us in that. It's a special moment for us as a church. Um, we're now going to move in uh, to studying the Word of God together. So I'm going to invite Steve and Kathy to come on up once the microphone makes its way up here. And they're going to uh, open us with Scripture and prayer. My voice. So I, I really need this. <clears throat> Good morning, friends. Read along with me. Read along with me from God's Word. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen. Let's pray. God, because of what Jesus has done for us and made possible, you call us to transform our hearts and our minds. Right action begins with right thinking. So God, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, empower us to set our hearts and our minds on those things that are true, right, noble, pure, excellent, praiseworthy. Give us the mindset of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Steve and Kathy. Well, Grace Hill, if you have a Bible, please open it up to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, as you know, we've been in a sermon series studying Luke for quite some time. We're in part 34, and we're going to start in Luke chapter 9, verse 57 this morning. If you have a Bible and if you would like to use your phone, an app on your phone, totally fine with us. And we'll also have the verses on the screen behind me. If you're new with us this morning, welcome. We're so glad you're here. My name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at, at Grace Hill Church. We'd love to be able to meet you uh, after the service. 
uh, I've, I have a question that I've been kind of pondering all week, and that's this. If you consider yourself a Christian, follower of Jesus, I want you to think about this. Does being a Christian add stress to your life? I want you to think about that for a second. Does being a Christian add stress and anxiety to your life? Like on top of all of the things that you are trying to manage in life, money, job, family, relationships, whatever it is, does, does being a follower of Jesus just add on top of that other things you now need to do? You know, I got to study my Bible now and go to church and be a part of a community group and this and that. There's other things now that I need to fit in and try to manage my life. It's kind of a tough question to think about, if you ask me. Or is your faith really actually something that, that takes all the things of your life, all the things that you need to manage, and actually put it into perspective? So, so which one is it? Is it something that's just add on top of everything else, or is it something that puts everything else into perspective? And so this morning, when we jump into Luke, we're going to study a lot of text this morning in Luke. We're going to go from Luke 9.57 all the way through chapter 10, verse 24. We got a lot of text to cover today, but as we cover all of this ground, and we're gonna kind of go in and out, read a little bit and, and come back out and see what it means for us. But as we cover all of this text, I, I think one of the things that Jesus is going to teach us this morning is how does a Christian, how should a Christian approach life in all of its craziness, in all of the things in our life that we're trying to manage, what does it mean for a Christian, a follower of Jesus, to navigate all of those things? Is it possible that it could be different for us? Last week, we were in Luke 9, kind of making our way through, and we hit verse 51, Luke 9, 51. And it says this, I want to read this real fast, because I think what happens is Jesus leads us by example in answering this question. Jesus says, or it says about Jesus here, Luke writing in verse 51, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, meaning to go to the cross, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this is a verse in the gospel of Luke that kind of marks a transition so before this verse, you know, Jesus, we read about his birth. We read about him coming into his ministry. He's beginning to teach about the kingdom of God. But then it, we hit 951, and it says Jesus has now set his face for the cross. All right? He is now determined to go to the cross. And it's a transition point in this gospel. Like, what does it mean to set your face upon something? This is my definition. I think it means to generate momentum towards something, right? I'm so determined to reach a particular goal. I've generated momentum towards it. And my current circumstances are not going to slow me down or stop me. That's what it means to set my face onto something. I got a goal and I'm going to go achieve it. 
I remember when I was the mature age of 15, I set my face upon a young lady named Kim, who's now my wife. We had been friends for a few years, and, uh, but then I saw her at a football game. We didn't go to the same school, but I saw her at a football game, and I set my face upon Kim. And we started talking, and we started hanging out a little bit more, and I decided that I wanted to ask her out. That's what we said back in the day. I don't know what the kids these days say. So I had planned uh, for us, I asked her if she would have coffee with me. So we went to a Starbucks. I couldn't drive then, so my brother drove both of us in his Ford Thunderbird uh, to uh, Starbucks. And we had coffee, and I planned to ask her then, but I chickened out. All right, I kind of, I didn't have the courage. But my face was set, right? So later that night, I called her to, to, to finally ask her if she would, she would go out with me, and my face was set. She said no. I wasn't expecting that because I knew, I thought, she, I thought her face was set upon me too, I'll be honest with you. But anyway, at the end of the day, we kept on spending time together and spending time together, and eventually we started to date each other, and we never looked back. We're still together today, many, many, many years later. But what it means to set your face upon something is to have a goal, to generate momentum towards some intended result, and your circumstances are not going to stop you, right? I don't care if she said no. My face is set towards the goal. And in Luke 9.51, what we see is Jesus set his face to the cross. He was headed there, and nothing was going to stop him. And for the rest of this gospel, everything Jesus teaches, everything Jesus does, it's with the cross looming on the horizon. He's headed in that direction. And I think Jesus here gives us an example of how the Christian is called to live their life and navigate all of the things. Let's start in our text this morning. I want you to see this. Luke 9, 57, this is where we're really going to begin Jesus is going to say some things, answering this question, they're going to be pretty tough to hear. Look at what he says, verse 57, it says this, as they were going along the road, where are they going? They're headed to Jerusalem now. Jesus has his face set to the cross, right? As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you really going to go where I'm going? Is your face going to be set to what my face is set upon? To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Reasonable request. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Ooh. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's a, it's a tough passage there, but here's what I think Jesus is saying. Here's what I think Jesus is trying to teach us in this text, and he's gonna continue to unpack for us through chapter 10 is this, is that what it means to live the Christian life, what it means to follow Jesus, it means that we have our faces set upon the kingdom of God. 
That's what Jesus is saying. Our face is set on the kingdom of God. It's not set on the things of this world. This reality that the world that we know it today is not our permanent home, right? Our text later on is going to say, rejoice at the fact that your name is written in heaven, meaning you have been guaranteed entry into God's kingdom for all of eternity. That's your destination. And so we should set our faces to that. And everything we encounter in this world is not going to stop us or slow us down. In fact, everything will be taken in context of the fact that I'm headed towards the kingdom. Let's generate momentum towards God's kingdom with nothing slowing us down. That's what Jesus is saying here. But here's the challenge. The challenge is this, is that every single day we are tempted to set our face on things in this world. And when we set our face upon things in this world, what happens is our faith just becomes an obstacle to achieving those things. It gets in the way. It makes it more stressful. It's an obstacle to where we have set our face. And so I want us to see what Jesus has to say about this. Luke chapter 10, we're gonna study verses one all the way through verse 24. And I think Jesus is going to deal with a few different areas that all of us are tempted to set our face upon in this world. Let me read verse one to three real quick. Look what Jesus says. It says, after this, these little dialogues with these people who wanted to follow Jesus, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. 72 followers of his paired up in twos going out to the towns. Verse two, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And so what Jesus is doing is he's grabbing those who follow him and he's pairing them up in twos and he's sending them out to go proclaim the kingdom of God with their face set upon the kingdom of God and not looking back to the things of this world. And here's what I think this text is gonna serve uh, for us this morning is this, as a illustration or an analogy for how the Christian should live their life, right? As we look about it, and look at how Jesus told these 72 disciples how they should go about going through these towns. I think it serves as an analogy for us. What does it actually look like? What does it actually mean to have our face set upon the kingdom of God and to live our life in that way? And I'm gonna give it to you right now. He's going to talk about three different things in this world that we will be tempted to set our face upon instead of the kingdom. I'll give them to you right now. We'll be tempted to set our face upon comfort. We'll be tempted to set our face upon the approval of other people. And we will be tempted to set our face upon success. All three of these will be a challenge for us. And Jesus is gonna deal with all three. 
So let's go to verse 4, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 4. He's giving instructions to these 72. I'm going to read verses 4 to 9. He says this, Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, not even sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So why do you think Jesus instructs these 72 disciples not to take things with them like a wallet and shoes and different things that they might need for their journey? Or he tells them, hey, eat whatever is served to you, right? Why does Jesus give them these specific instructions? I love what J.C. Ryle says. He's a pastor from a couple of hundred years ago, and his commentary on Luke is quickly becoming my favorite. He says this. He says, we must endeavor, we, followers of Jesus, Christians, we must endeavor to pass through the world like men and women who are not yet at home and are not overmuch troubled about the fare they meet with on the road and at the inn. A little old language, but. Blessed are they who feel like pilgrims and strangers in this life and whose best things are all to come. What does it look like to follow Jesus, but to set your face upon comfort? To where you say, I, Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll go wherever you go. I'll do anything you want to do. But in actuality, your face isn't set on the kingdom. It's set on comfort. What I think it looks like is faith with conditions, right? Like, Jesus, yes, I'm willing to do what you call me to do. I want clarity from you on your will for my life. Tell me where to go and I'll go. But... I'm not willing to give up my lifestyle. I'm not willing to give up my predictable income. I'm not willing to give up you fill in the blank. Those things are kind of prereqs for me and the way that I live my life. And I think that's evidence of setting your face upon comfort. And Jesus sent out his disciples wanting their face set upon the kingdom and nothing else. And so he said, hey, don't even bring those things along with you. You want to know what I believe? I've been praying for you this week, Grace Hill. I believe that there are people in this room right now, and God has called you to incredible things. And you feel it in your bones. God has called you as a laborer to go into the harvest to do amazing things. You've dreamt about it, but you haven't done it because your face is set on your comfort. And you've never even thought about what would it look like, God, to live my life for you 
like these 72 where I don't bring anything along with me. God, you have me and I'll step into whatever you have for me. You know, that's God's vision for the church is that we would be people who would say, God, we will do whatever you call us to do. No conditions put on it. And you know what's sad? What's sad is when you set your face on the things of this world and you set your face on something like comfort, what happens is that you never really arrive on what you set your face upon. That measure is always moving and then you reach towards the end of your life and you look back and you realize, man, I never stepped out in faith into the things, God, that you have called me to do because I've been chasing this thing that I can't even grasp. Curious, what has God called you to do? What would it look like for you to set your face upon that? Go back into our text, verse 10. Jesus is continuing with his instructions and he says, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Therese, and woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So Jesus is saying, listen, you're gonna go into these towns and you will get rejected. Not everyone's going to accept the message that you have. And what he's essentially doing is he's listing off these Old Testament towns that God brought judgment down upon. And he said, it's gonna be more bearable for them than for these towns who are actually hearing the gospel of the kingdom. He's the, uh, what, what Luke is saying, what Jesus is saying, is that if these towns in the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon, who were judged by God, if they had disciples of Jesus in their town proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, they would have actually repented. But Jesus' whole point is this. You will be rejected. To set our face upon the kingdom doesn't just mean that we're looking forward to the kingdom. It also means that we are proclaiming the kingdom to the lost and dying that are around us. As Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. But how many of us are paralyzed by the fear of rejection? How many of us have our face set upon the approval of other people and not on the kingdom? Again, right? It's a faith with conditions. God, I'll follow you. I'll do whatever you call upon me to do, but I'm not willing to go into that awkward situation. 
I'm not willing to offend this person. I'm not willing to stand strong for things that your scripture says that the entire culture around us is saying isn't true. I just wanna encourage all of us this morning because we all struggle with this. Did we read verse 16? Where Jesus says, I mean, just, just don't let this go in one ear and out the other. Where Jesus says, the one who hears you, hears me. And Jesus is saying to you, the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Jesus is saying, because of the cross, because I have brought you into relationship with me, because we are literally united together. That when people reject you, they are rejecting me. I'm with you. Like the God of the heavens who created everything is saying, I am for you and with you. And when people reject you, they are rejecting me. And I'm going to deal with that, is what Jesus is saying. He's saying to his disciples, these towns that are rejecting you, I will deal with them. You don't need to deal with them. I will deal with them because they rejected you. They reject me. And I know that this can be hard to believe when we think about the idea that we've been called to go proclaim the kingdom of God to our neighbors and to our coworkers and to everyone who's around us. It can be hard to believe the fact that in the rejection that I feel from the world, that at the same time, I have this unity with Christ. But I think this is exactly why we need one another. I think it's exactly why Jesus sent out his disciples in groups of two. Like the Christian life, listen, requires deep, close friendships inside the church. Friendships where you are safe to be known, where it is safe to share your fears, where it is safe for you to debrief and to process all of those things that you fear about being in the world and proclaiming the kingdom. Because when we look at what the church is supposed to be and what the church is supposed to do, what it's supposed to be is this, is that when people reject you, yes, they reject Jesus, but they also reject us. Like, if this is you, what would it look like for you to grab some people in this church and say, hey, can we just start spending some time together? Maybe it's your community group. And maybe your community group has that conversation where you go, hey, can we be real about what we need to be for one another? Here's what we need to be. We need to be a group of people where we just stop with trying to impress one another. Let's just be done with that. Let's be done with the fear about who's the most spiritual. Let's be done with the fear about what other people think about us. Let's be done with the fear of all of that. Let's actually let this be a place where we can share all of that. We can encourage one another. And here's the deal is as we love one another, show up for one another, are consistent with one another, continue to provide a safe place for us to be known and share our fears with one another, as we experience the approval of one another, it's easier to believe in the approval you have in Christ. When you have a church family that says, yeah, when they reject you, they reject us, it now makes it so much easier to set your face on the kingdom rather than the approval of others in this world. And that, again, is God's vision for the church. 
His vision for the church isn't consume, come, hear a sermon, worship together, that's it. It's no, it's this. We are a body together that strengthens one another as we set our face on the kingdom and work the harvest. It's a place where we tangibly experience the love of Christ because we can see it in one another's eyes. It's a place where we tangibly can realize that God's steadfast love endures forever because our love for one another is steadfast. And we don't leave one another when it gets hard. And we don't reject one another when things get awkward. And when that kind of body is built, we now are producing disciples who set their face on the kingdom. Back to our text, chapter 10, verse 17. It says, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you, right? He's saying, I have given you the ability and the authority to cast out demons. I have given you authority over the enemy. I've given you authority to heal sickness, sicknesses and diseases, right? So these guys are going out and they're doing that stuff. Verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The disciples had success, amazing success. God gave them the ability to do these incredible things and they were doing it and they were rightfully excited, but he didn't want them to set their face on that. Like why? Right? Who, who of us could do those things that Jesus gave them the ability to do and not boast about it? You know, I have personally um, a unique job as a preacher. I have one of those jobs that uh, it kind of ties my heart in a knot every single week because I just so long for you through the weekly preaching of God's word, to grow in Christ, to be challenged, to be encouraged, to be inspired, all of these things that I pray for you every single week. And at the very same time, when I come up here, I wanna preach a killer sermon every single time. And every Sunday, right, it is an exercise in my heart for me to come down from this pulpit and not rejoice in a good sermon preached, but rejoice in the fact that my name is written in heaven. And that God, yes, has called me to this work and I will do it as long as he allows me to do it. But I don't rest in the fact that I preach well. I don't rest in the fact that our church grows. I rest in the fact that my name is written in heaven. That's a weekly battle for me. If my face was set upon success, then my faith becomes stressful every single week. And so many of us have our face set upon success in so many spheres of life, whether that's at your work, just wanting to do an amazing job, which is not a bad thing, or, or maybe that's through your parenting and you're just so concerned about doing everything right and there's so many things you have to think about to do right or whether that's in your relationships or yes, even in your faith, we, our face can be set upon success. 
And our life is full of stress because there's so much we feel like we're failing at in life, not doing enough of, inconsistent with. So here's what I want to do. Uh, As you walked in today, um, hopefully you grabbed a communion cup. Uh, If you didn't, do me a favor, raise your hand, and a couple of these people will grab some and they'll bring some to you. Just keep your hand raised until... Someone arrives with a cup. I want to do something unique today as we close. When you get your cup, what I would like for you to do is I want you to just close your eyes. Just in your seat. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you do anything weird. And what I want you to do is I just want you to spend some time silently reflecting. And here's what I want you to reflect on, just for a minute. Where do you feel like you're currently failing? You can close your eyes and just think about this for a second. Where do you feel like you're currently failing in life? Where do you currently feel like there's just so many things that you're not doing right? What do you need to be doing more of? What's nagging at you? I want you to take a minute and I I want you to list those things in your head. I want you to name them. And as you hold that cup in your hand, I want you to know that those things do not determine the level of God's pleasure in you. Those things may be things that you have set your face upon. But Jesus Christ set his face upon the cross. To rescue you. To cleanse you. And to make it. So that there is nothing that you could do. No failure. No inconsistency that would separate you from his love. Those things that you list in your head, those, I want you to know that it's okay. You don't have to be great at all of them. 
You don't have to set your face on all of those things. Your value is not determined by achieving those things. The cup in your hand is proof. Keep your eyes closed. I want you to listen to the rest of our passage this morning, verses 21 to 24. It says, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This message of the gospel, it's not for those who have earned it. It is for those whom Jesus has graciously given it. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What did these prophets and kings long to hear and long to see? It was the kingdom of God. The place where your names are written. And regardless if you feel inadequate right now or a failure, your name is written there. Jesus chose to reveal it to you. The Bible calls you a blessed one. And so the bread and juice in your hand, it's an invitation for you this morning to rest. To rest from your work. To rest from your labor. To rest from the stress and anxiety in your heart that tells you that you have not done enough. That there's more to do. And the bread that we eat that represents the broken body of Christ and the juice that we drink that represents the shed blood of Christ declares to us that Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done in order to qualify you for your name to be written in heaven. And he rejoices over you. So here's my invitation to you is to take a few moments right now to rest to let go of all the things where you feel like a failure. To no longer set your face upon the things of the world, but upon the kingdom. And to rejoice in the fact that your names are written in heaven. Take a few moments, rest, eat the bread, drink the juice, and we will finish our time in some worship.